through the book of Daniel at last and uh, managed to make it through three verses. Uh, we'll try to make a little more progress than that today, but as you recall, as a, a matter of brief review here, uh, I talked about how the 70 years of Daniel has a parallel or a type with what is happening with the church today as per Zechariah 1, and uh, we'll see more of that as we go on through. But I did emphasize a bit that we are the eunuchs for the kingdom spoken of in Isaiah 56. Uh, we are the only peoples on earth who truly keep God's Sabbath and in the way that he desires it to be kept. At least I hope we are. As we learn better, we'll keep it better. Uh, but uh, we don't worship the Sabbath as some do, uh, but we do keep it and try to make sure that we sanctify it in the way that God has and keep it in a holy manner uh, before him. So there is a tie-in, in other words, between us and those to whom Daniel is writing today, and I think I could be so bold as to say that he's writing to us because the internal evidence throughout the book of Daniel is that it is very much an end-time book, as is Revelation. All of them really are, but this one uh, says so of itself. And therefore, if it's an end-time book, it's sealed up until the end, in fact, then it has its, prior, or its primary application for us today. Uh, it did have some application historically, I think, uh, and that can be shown. I did not go with that. The commentaries are full of that, about Antiochus Epiphanes and the different kingdoms of, you know, Babylon and Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome that have existed. But I do believe there's an end-time application of all those kingdoms, and we'll get to that as we go on. So let's pick it up here uh, in verse 3. The king spoke to Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the princes. Uh, these apparently were specifically picked. They were of the king of Judah's seed, uh, not of the king of Babylon's seed. They were the children of Judah. So they picked the outstanding children of the Jewish nation and brought them for a special purpose here. So they took royalty, not just any old kid, but those of royalty, those who had been trained in royalty because they were to serve in the Babylonian court at this point, and to have children who already had some training in the royal court of Judah would be good candidates then to simply transform into servants of Babylon instead of Judah. And we'll see that in their names a little later on. But verse 4, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science. So these were young people who had been trained in all the arts and sciences and uh, uh, court behavior and procedure and so on that Judah had. And that was uh, substantial knowledge. Uh, God's people had great knowledge of astronomy and of different sciences, probably more than we even begin to realize. I think to one degree or another, we have tended to buy into evolution a little bit, whether we know it or not. And somehow we think those people back there didn't have as much knowledge and weren't quite as bright as we are. But I think in actual fact, they probably were smarter than we are. And maybe in some respects better educated with true education. Uh, they hadn't degenerated, in other words. 
had such had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, that is, royal training, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. So bright, sharp kids that they figured could learn Chaldean quite readily and already had other training. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat. Now let me back up just for a moment here. I made the comment last time that... Uh, uh, well, now the thought escaped me. <laughs> I forget what I said two weeks ago. You probably have, too. Uh, oh, that Hezekiah's children would be eunuchs, as we read in Isaiah, in, in the courts of Babylon. And uh, Hezekiah was the king of Judah. So probably Daniel and these uh, four particularly that are mentioned here were likely uh, descendants of Hezekiah, king of Judah. So royal children in that sense. Now among these were the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names, they changed their names, for he gave to Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. Now let's look at the names and what they meant before and after. Daniel means judge of God, and are one who judges for God, who makes right judgments in God's behalf in that sense. And Belteshazzar, his Babylonian name, means Baal's prince, or Baal's prince, or one in favor of Baal. That's quite a change. In a few cases, God changed people's names in the Bible and gave them a more godly name if they were following God. Here they did just the reverse. Hananiah, uh, his name in uh, the Hebrew language was whom Jehovah has graciously given, or a gift from God in that sense. Shadrach means young friend of the king. See what they're doing? They're trying to associate them with Babylon, even by their name. Mishael in Hebrew is who is what God is. A child like God, in other words. And Meshach means a little sheep. One who can be taught the things we want him to learn, in other words. Azariah was named whom Jehovah helps. And his new name of Abednego means a servant of Nego or Nebo, that is Mercury, a planet worship. goes back to Satan and the demons, actually. So what they wanted to do was make these children forget the true God and be associated with Baal and with Babylon and learn the Babylonish ways. That was the purpose. Look at our education system today. Do they want us to learn the ways of Babylon and the ways of Baal today? Not only in the holidays that they teach children at school, we're supposed to have a separation of church and state, but we don't. They teach pagan, godly, or days of the pagan gods, the holidays, corruption of holy days. And then they teach us all kinds of social adjustment in this modern educational system, more than they do reading, writing, and arithmetic. Uh, teachers will tell you that they get 7th and 8th and ninth graders that have a 3rd grade reading level in the, in the uh, schools. So they're not learning those things, but they're learning pop psychology. They're learning 
social adjustments. They're learning to take pills so they don't take temper have temper tantrums. And on and on and on it goes. And they are they are dumbing down American children. And it is a planned dumbing down. It's not by accident that this is occurring. I don't have time to go in all that. I don't have all the, the material here before me, but I've read enough on it to know that that's basically what's going on in our educational system. And the fruits are evidence of the fact that that is occurring because our kids may be pretty good in math, some of them, but they're losing the, the proper communication skills and the uh, reading skills that are necessary to truly learn. If you can't read well, it's hard to learn later in life. At any rate, they had in mind to draw these children away from God. That's the primary point I wanted to make here. Now he says, But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Daniel was astute enough to be aware of what the Babylonians were doing. They were trying to destroy any relationship with the true God and convert them to Babylonian ways. Now, you and I grew up in a Babylonian system, and we already know the ways of Babylon, don't we? Quite familiar with them. We were immersed in them. When we started coming into God's truth, we began to depart from some of those things. My question is, and it's not really a question, my statement is we have not come at all anywhere near far enough out of that. We made a good start. We gave up the holidays of paganism, uh, Jeremiah 10 and Ezekiel, and they talk about Easter and Christmas and so on. We, we understand that. That's long behind us. But have we retained a lot of the things of Babylon is, is the question I want to put for us today. And before I'm done, I want to throw a challenge at us. Now let's read what Daniel did. He purposed in his heart, he made a life decision, in other words, that he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now what they were offering, these four young men and the other Jews that were in the court, were the king's dainties. It has been debated what that means. Some have uh, offered that maybe they were serving unclean food there, or unclean meats. And therefore, Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not eat of unclean meat. I don't think that holds water, because had they been Jewish Jews to begin with, they would have not accepted that, period. I mean, that would have just been a no-brainer. We're not going to eat unclean meat in Babylon. Uh, others have said, well, maybe this was meat that are foods that were offered to idols. Now, in their training and their background in Judaism, and in the Bible for that matter, the, the, the two are not always the same, but in their training, they had been taught not to eat things offered to idols or strangled or so on, as Paul brought out in the New Testament of the Gentiles who were still doing some of those things and, and said they should not be doing it. Uh, but these were things, well, all right, let me, let me back up a moment. As we go on down through this story, we'll see 
that in 10 days' time only, what they switched to made them look better and feel better than what they had been eating of the Babylonians. Therefore, I think we can conclude that it's not talking about things offered to idols, because something offered to an idol does not change the chemical composition of that food. It's the same. Paul made that clear in the New Testament. He said an idol is nothing. An idol can't hurt you. It doesn't mean anything. And he said if it doesn't bother your conscience, you could even go into the temple of Diana there in Ephesus and eat meats offered to idols, cheap lunch, <laughs> uh, probably cheaper than you might get elsewhere. But he said the idol can't hurt you just because some pagan prayed over it didn't change the food. And we can get spooked by these things. But Jeremiah brought up the same thing about the Christmas tree. He said, don't have one, but don't be afraid of it. It can't hurt you. I mean, you don't have to walk in a big circle around a Christmas tree. Uh, it, it has no power to hurt or harm. But it has a wrong meaning, and therefore you shouldn't be involved in it. And the same was true of meat offered to idols. The point here being that had it been offered to idols, it wouldn't have changed anything, and it wouldn't have changed their health to have eaten it in that way. What they did go to made them look better and feel better after only 10 days. They got away from the things that the Babylonians were eating and did better, visibly so. Now, to me, it really doesn't make any difference what these king's dainties were. In other words, do we need to try to find in history some way or on a, a tablet where it is written exactly what was being eaten? in the king's court in Babylon when this was written, about 600 B.C. No, we simply extract the principle. If what they were eating in Babylon was not good for them, we need to look around and see what a Babylonian society today is eating and if it's good for us. Now, he doesn't say just the king's meat either. He says with the wine which he drank. So it's both food and drink here that Daniel saw was not good for him and for his companions. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to look around at what you see in a grocery store today and see that there's an awful lot of food and drink there that is harmful to the human body. Now, I've been working up to this sermon for a, quite a long time now, uh, in first addressing the temple. Remember back several sermons ago where we went through the tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple of Solomon and Herod and so on and showed with what meticulousness and carefulness God designed those and had the building of them carried out. Very, very careful. We went through all the scriptures back there, or some of them at least, enough to get a feeling for how very, very careful what God was in building that tabernacle. Everything had to be pure. Everything had to be right. It had to be according to his exact specifications and patterns. And then we went to the New Testament to show that our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Now let's go on and read this, and then I will, I'll get into this a little bit more. Uh, the king's meat here in the Hebrew is uh, patbag. Uh, probably bad Hebrew pronunciation, but that's, uh, it, it just means food. And or our bag, and when you put two words together, pat and bag, it means delicacies or king's food. Uh, it doesn't really give you much in terms of definition. 
But whatever it was, it wasn't good for these guys. I mean, that's the bottom line. That's the principle we need to extract. Now, God had brought Daniel into favor and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. In other words, they had been there for some time. I don't know how long, but in a period of time, he had come into great favor of the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who has appointed your meat and your drink, and says, the king says you eat this, you drink this, you will eat it. Uh, that was the Assyrian, Babylonian uh, way of doing things. And we saw some of that perhaps in World War II as well. Uh, and if he didn't do it, the consequences are pretty strong. But why should he see your face, or faces, worse liking or, or less good-looking than the children which are of your sort, of, of Judaism? Then shall you make me endanger my head to the king. The king said, you are to eat and drink this, and if you don't, I lose my head. Now, I like you, Daniel, but this is kind of personal now, you know. So Dan Daniel said to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had set over Daniel and, and the other three fellows, Prove your servants, I beseech you, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Now, I looked up pulse here in the Hebrew, and it's, it's not fully defined, but it essentially means vegetable matter. Fruits, vegetables, uh, that which is of seed. And it goes, and I think you could take this back to Genesis, where God showed clearly at the beginning that he had given us herbs and plants and so on and the fruit of those for our food. He added meat somewhat later, and meat is okay to eat today, uh, but perhaps it should be eaten in measure and not as much as Americans tend to eat. Uh, the majority of our diet, I should think, would be of those things which God originally intended. God's original intent is important. And we look at a, a nation today that eats an awful lot of meat and an awful lot of a lot of other things uh, in excess, and we are suffering for it. So he says, prove your servants for ten days only. There was such a vast difference now in the diets between what they had been eating and what they were about to eat that in only ten days you could tell a difference. Then let our countenances be looked upon before you, verse 13, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's food, and as you see, deal with your servants. Let's go by the fruits, in other words. So he consented to them, and this fact proved them ten days, and at the end of ten days their countenances appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Now this opened Melzar's eyes, and he thought, well, I won't lose my head after all, maybe. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their king's dainties, their food, and the wine that they should drink, and gave them pulse instead. So that's the account of the food and the drink of Babylon. Now I think that we can extract a great deal from this. And I want to go back for a moment to Revelation well, let's, let's don't go there yet. Let's look at the history of the church first a little bit. Some of you may remember back to the 50s and 60s. I certainly do. I was only a child in the early 50s, but I, I remember very much what we ate and what we drank. Uh, the church as a whole, 
Now, I won't say in every case, but generally the church as a whole was very conscious of what we ate and what we drank. Uh, we went on the whole wheat and honey. Uh, now, God says eat not much honey, and I think that we overindulged there. We thought, well, if honey's good, we might as well eat barrels of it. So everything was honey. Now, any kind of sweet, and I think that there's spiritual principles there as well, uh, if we pamper ourselves too much spiritually, too much of the sweet, uh, we get in trouble. We need to hear the other as well. We need to hear the vegetables and the meat of the word, not just the sweet things that we like to hear. So there's a principle there. But on a physical level, uh, much sweet is not good. And even a good sweet, such as honey, God says, not much there in the Proverbs. So we need to be careful even of things that are good and be temperate in all things. But we were eating more fruits and vegetables. We were trying to be careful uh, with the quality of meat we had. Everything had to be fresh ground if possible uh, as far as uh, grains were concerned. And you know what? We were getting quite a few healings in those years in the 50s and 60s. Some of you remember that. I remember it vividly. Uh, people who were about to die of different things were healed. And we don't get much of that anymore, do we? In fact, people lament constantly that the prayer lists are very long and that people are having all kinds of problems. And we say, well, why isn't God healing today? Why doesn't he heal like he did back in the 50s and 60s? And we don't seem to come up with an answer most of the time of why this has changed. Now, I believe in cause and effect. And Herbert Armstrong taught us that over and over again, that for every effect there is a cause. So if God was healing, and then God quit healing, or slowed it down dramatically, is there a cause here? Now I understand that in the early New Testament, God did something very dramatic there in Acts 2, so that even the apostles' shadow passing over people healed them. But that was for a specific reason, for a short period of time, to show that God was working in those apostles and in that early New Testament church. Later on, Paul left, was it uh, Epaphroditus, I think it was, to die. He said, I think he's going to die. So he didn't expect an immediate healing, even though there was Eutychus, that he resurrected and he fell out of the law. But there were times when he apparently did not expect that someone was going to recover. In other words, healing was not automatic. From, the, from Acts 2 on, uh, God did make a dramatic show. And when those things started happening in Acts 2, remember how Peter tied it in with Joel about your young men and, and women and so on, and old men dreaming dreams and having visions and healings and the various things that Joel talks about. And Peter thought, boy, this is now. This is happening. That scripture is being fulfilled. Well, little did he know that there were another 2,000 years before Joel would literally be fulfilled in the way that God intends Joel to be fulfilled at the end. Uh, it was a type of that, fulfilled in perhaps a smaller way than it is going to be at the end. I firmly believe that at the end, God is going to show his hand and his power uh, in the way that he did in Acts 2, and even more so because that's what Joel talks about, and Peter quickly related that to what was happening then, not knowing, of course, that we had 2,000 years left, and that that was yet for the time of the end, because Joel was speaking of the time of the end, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord was not imminent when Peter wrote that. 
and when Peter observed what was happening in Acts 2. We're getting close to the day of the Lord now, I think, within a few years, and these things will happen again. Now, maybe part of that happening has to do with you and me. Maybe there's cause and effect. Now, God may do some of it in spite of us, just as he did in Acts 2, in spite of them. They were not perfect by any means. They still, they were just brand new and just being converted that day. And the Holy Spirit only came that day. So it was not entirely upon, based upon their spiritual standing with God in that sense. There was a dramatic show for a particular reason. But in our everyday lives, in this past 50, 60, 70 years of the well, actually nearly 70 now that the church has existed within the confines of a Babylonian system, we have seen a lot of things come and go. And I have personally seen people who were doing their best, uh, or almost their best, or whatever, eating right, and we were getting healings. I can remember my dad severely chastening me if I came home from school with chocolate on my breast. Pop was off the chart, not on the list of approved foods. Now we have pop in all kinds of variations today. The 5% fruit juices, which are basically just sugar water with 5% in it, and people buy that and says, says real fruit juice, and then they forget to read down where it says 5%. Uh, you know, or Gatorade, or all these things that are basically just sugar water. And and we're swigging the stuff all the time. But it was a no-no when I was a kid. I have been spanked for eating sugar and chocolate. And I don't regret it. I just regret that I got away from what I was being taught then. Now let's go back to the book of Revelation with just that brief uh, message from the history of the church and read what he says here in Revelation 18. from heaven saying, now this is a voice from heaven. This is from God. This isn't my opinion or your opinion. This is from God. Let's emphasize that. Come out of her, my people, that you be not partakers of her sins, and that you receive not of her plagues. I submit to you that America is entering a time of plagues now. You might think we have a plague of famine and disease and pestilence in equatorial Africa where they do not have enough to eat and they are plagued by AIDS and some 30, 40, 50, 60 percent of people actually have are HIV positive in some of those areas. You think, well, they're having some plagues down there. But stop and think a minute about what we have become used to here. Probably one third to one fourth of all Americans breathing today will have cancer before they die. That's a lot of people. Diabetes is becoming a plague in this country. It is increasing by leaps and bounds. I recently read a report that three out of four American children today will have diabetes at some point in their life. Seventy-five percent 
Is that a plague or what? One out of three or four Americans will also have heart disease before they die. There are a lot of people. There's I probably there's no one in the hearing of my voice probably who does not know someone who's gone through double, triple, quadruple, quadruple heart bypass surgery. I know a lot of people that have. Kidneys are failing, livers are failing, hearts are failing, uh, stomachs are failing. We are a people that are sick. A medical science cannot keep up. The health care systems cannot keep up with what is going on. They can't get enough nurses, they can't get enough doctors, enough hospitals to take care of the sick people. And a lot of people are going to experience two or more of these things that I named. Heart disease and diabetes. In fact, diabetes leads to heart disease. We used to talk about sugar diabetes when I was a kid. I put sugar on there and it has a lot to do with sugars. And we would hear about it, but it was not all that frequent. Now it's everywhere. You know what sugar diabetes does to you? Or diabetes type 2, or, you know, the fancy names without the sugar on there. It makes you go blind. Your circulation stops. You have your feet amputated. Your legs amputated as time goes on. Your heart begins to fail. The respiratory system sometimes gets gummed up. It's a dread disease. We are in the throes of plagues already in America and may not even recognize it as such. Will they get worse? Yes, they're going to get worse. Do you think Americans are going to stop doing the things they're doing? Do you think they're going to stop drinking pop and eating at fast food restaurants and eating junk full of chemicals, refined and processed foods? Not as a whole, they won't. There are people here and there who are waking up. There are a few people in the church who are waking up. But, you know, we used to say, it seems like the church is about six months behind the world. If the world is going downhill, we seem to be not going downhill quite as fast, but about six months behind them. And I think there's a certain amount of truth to that. Because as the world's diet has gotten worse and worse, in this instance, Speaking of this particular subject, ours also slid downhill. Maybe not quite as far for some of us, but a lot of us just abandoned being careful what we ate. Part of that was a result of the ministry. Because in the early 70s, some of us began to say, well, that's just physical. It doesn't really matter. The spiritual things are what count. Yeah, but aren't we physical? And doesn't God say that our judgment is based upon how we handle this physical life? I mean, that's what he made us physical for and gave us a physical realm to live in to see how we would handle the physical things. Didn't Christ say that how you treat your brother and whether you feed him or tell him be warmed and filled is how he would judge you? And whether you forgave him of his transgressions against you is how he would judge you. We're physical people. Yes, we understand some spiritual things. But he says our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is a critical issue. And when they began to tell us, well, that's just physical, people began to relax. They began to eat more like the world, do more like the world. Now, is there cause and effect? Is there a corollary here? 
did is we began to sin by eating things that were not good for our temple. As we began to sin, did God begin withdrawing the healing? And the worse we got, did he withdraw it more and more? I mean, it's easy to blame God and say, why aren't you healing us? I'm trusting you. I have faith. Or I'll be anointed and then run to the doctor. You know, I'll, I'll, take, I'll, I'll take the olive oil on my head like an aspirin and then go to the doctor and get some real help. You know, people began going more that direction because they weren't getting results from God. And God began to heal less and less, I believe, because he was getting less and less results from us. And as a result of us going the way of the world, partaking of her sins, as it says here in Revelation 18, we also began to partake of her plagues. And now today, you look at a prayer list on most any website of a, a church of God somewhere today, and you'll see a long list of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and all kinds of problems that people are having. And there aren't many healings taking place. I'm not saying there aren't any. God sometimes is merciful in spite of himself in a way. I mean, he, he is merciful. He is loving. He is kind. And because he is God, he can't help himself, maybe, from healing in some cases. But I think a lot of times he may... We may get sick, and we go to God and ask him for healing. And maybe he says, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. You're eating everything this Babylonian system is putting out there, polluting your body, which is the temple of my spirit, and you come to me and ask for healing? You're nuts. I don't know whether he uses those words or not, but... I can imagine him having that reaction. He hears not the prayer of sinners. Now we, uh, I mean habitual sinners, and that's the force of what he says there. But have we not become habitual sinners in the way we do not take care of our bodies? In many, many cases. Now I know there's some glowing examples of people who have stuck to as good a diet as they could, and... I'm not speaking of that. I'm speaking of generally speaking. And I sinned in it too. A lot of those things I was taught of as a kid, I later more or less abandoned. Now, in my home, we've been eating homemade bread for ever since I've had a home and a family. And we've stuck to some of those things, but at the same time, we added a lot of the other junk. So it was good to do that which was good, but it was bad to do that which was evil and was harmful. And I think that God's people are suffering a great deal today because we have become very slack in this area. Now we'll see in the book of Daniel that Daniel first addressed this. Then he addressed spiritual subjection to Babylon. But he addressed this first. Now, I want to turn back to 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11. Paul makes a statement here that I think we need to hone in on a bit. He's talking about the Passover and eating and drinking in the right attitude and approach. And he says in verse...
verse 28, Let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread, and drink of that cup. For he that eats and drinks in a wrong attitude, or in an unworthy uh, approach, and think about this in terms of healing. He says the prayer of faith heals the sick. Now what gives you stronger faith? Obedience to God. If I know I'm sinning in some area of my life, and I go to God and ask Him for help or blessing or healing or whatever else I might be asking of God, and I know good and well that something is wrong in my life, can I pray in absolute faith and trust in God? After having read all the scriptures throughout the Bible which indicate that He gives grace to the humble and the meek and the obedient, and he resists the proud and the arrogant and those who think of themselves and put themselves first and said, I break the Ten Commandments. It's hard to pray in faith when you are disobeyed. And I think when we understand it, it's hard to pray in faith for physical healing when we know that we're breaking every physical rule there is to break. How can we put the kind of trust in God that is necessary when our conscience is beset with insecurity. If it is not of good conscience, it is sin. So he says, if you don't do this in the right attitude and approach, you eat and drink damnation to yourself, not dividing into two parts the Lord's body. Now notice verse 30, which some have tended to overlook, and I think we all have to one degree or another. For this cause, Many are weak and sickly among you. He's writing to the church of God at Corinth. He said, many of you are weak and sick, and many are dead. Many sleep. Many have died because you are not properly dividing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now we know that he died and his blood was poured out for our forgiveness of sin and that we might live, the life is in the blood. So that part of his sacrifice was for eternal life, essentially. But he did not have to be beaten. He did not have to have stripes. He did not have to go through all the physical destruction that his body suffered during that amount of time. He says there in Psalms, I may count all my bones. They have stripped the flesh off so that he could literally see his bones. None of them were broken, as prophesied. But that doesn't mean the flesh had not been flayed off. And that was done why? That we might be healed. What does Peter say? I think it's First Peter 2.21. By his stripes we are healed. So his stripes have everything to do with our healing. Now let's go back and pick up a principle from, from uh, Hebrews chapter 6. And this may not apply strictly, but I think the principle is certainly here. He's talking about people who have not exercised their senses to discern good and evil in, in verse 14 of chapter 5. And he says, we need to not be so concerned about the things we may have repented of before, but... We need to go on and move forward. It says in verse 4, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come to 
understand eternal life and the mystery of God as best we can understand it now, through a glass darkly, but we know why we're here. If they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance. If we go through the process of repentance and learning about God, and then we spit on that and depart from it, the dog returning to its vomit or the sow to her wallow, as James says, it's impossible to renew them, he says here again, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now we send in our lives as Methodists and Baptists and Catholics to a great degree in ignorance. We did not understand the truth. So our sins were even then crucifying Christ, were they not? But we were doing it in ignorance, and then once God removed the blinders from our eyes and gave us ability to see, then we began to realize how we personally had a, a part in his death. It wasn't just the Jews, it was I did it. I sinned and came short of the glory of God, and I crucified Christ. And we were supposed to repent of that sin and move forward with an understanding now. All right, we came to a knowledge. And God says if we depart from that, it's almost impossible to bring us back. And I think of people who left worldwide after they had learned the truth, and they went right back to the Methodist or the Baptist or whatever it's like, like as if nothing had ever happened. Now, how are you going to restore this to repentance once they have, have trampled God's truth into the dirt and departed from it? Very, very difficult. Because they've lost faith, they've lost trust in the truths of the Bible. So it's almost impossible to bring them back to believe that again once they've rejected it. And he says here that they put Christ to an open shame, crucifying him afresh, killing him all over again by going back to their old ways. Now, let's move that principle over to his stripes and the fleeing of his flesh. Now, if we learn that we should take care of our body, which is the temple of God's Holy Spirit. And then we begin to leave that knowledge and go back to the way this world is doing it. And we get sick as a result of that. Are we not laying him and bruising him afresh? Doesn't the principle fit that part of his sacrifice the same way it does his shed blood? I think the principle is the same. We're, it's just like we are taking the lash ourselves and beating our Savior with them all over again if we don't take care of our physical bodies. None of us, I think, want to be responsible for that. So I'm going to throw a challenge at us today. And that is whether we can go back to doing those things that were right and maybe we weren't doing everything right even then, and maybe there's improvement over what was even being done in the 50s and 60s, and see if we can get it right, and see if it is possible to take care of our bodies in the way that God intended them to be taken care of. I am sure Christ took very good care of his body when he was on this earth. I heard a minister make a comment some years ago where he said, I don't believe Christ was a fat man. That stung me a bit, being uh, about 10% overweight. Uh, and I lost some weight, and I've gained some weight back, and I've lost some weight and gained some weight back. 
and I have not made enough permanent changes in my life, in my lifestyle, and when I shut down my eye hole so that I have it under control the way that it should be. So I'm not just going to preach at you. It's me too. And I have departed from some of these things, and I don't want to lay stripes on Jesus Christ. And every time I, or almost every time at least, I anoint someone, I remind God that Jesus Christ had his body broken and beaten for the healing of this individual here. Now, if I don't repent, and, and that person doesn't repent of what we're doing wrong to our bodies, are we not crucifying him afresh and having to remind him that he was beaten for us, our healing? How can I have faith in that prayer and true trust in God if I know I'm eating of the basic seven food group, that is, donuts, uh, sugar ice cream, hot dogs, potato chips, uh, ketchup, uh, one of the other two. That's the basic seven group for Americans. That's the one they taught me in school years ago, but that's kind of what it is now in American society for the most part. And it's a pathetic situation. Let's go back to Isaiah 53 now. I want to tie that in a little bit with this. Isaiah 53, I guess I already have, but I want to read it to you as well, or to us. Isaiah 52. He's echoing the same thing here. Uh, it says, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For henceforth there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. God wants us to be absolutely clean, and at some point he is going to cause any who are not that way not to come among us, certainly in the place of safety, and I think perhaps even before. He says, shake yourself from the dust, arise and sit up, Jerusalem, loose yourself from the bands of your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. And I believe that we are in captivity of Babylon today, in the nation of America specifically, I'm speaking now. Uh, we are an Israelite nation ruled over by a Babylonian system. Our capital is laid out in a Babylonian form. We have Babylonian symbols on our dollar bill. It's throughout our, it's throughout our society. You can't call America a Christian nation. You just can't do it. There are a lot of people who call themselves Christians, but they're not Christians according to the definition of the Bible. We are not a Christian nation. We follow the customs, the holidays, the symbols of Babylon. They've not changed since uh, Nimrod. They're still there. They've come through it all. So we are a church in the captivity of a Babylonian living people in every aspect of their lives. There is not an aspect of American society that you can look at and say, this is of God. Or is there, can you name one? I can't, or off the top of my head. I can't think of anything they do that I could say, they're doing that like God. So we have to examine every aspect of our lives and, let, and quit letting Babylon walk over us. He tells us to depart, in verse 11, and get away from the things that are sinful and wrong. Now, it talks about the unclean, and you can go into the definitions of clean and unclean in the Hebrew and the Greek and so on, and uh, that has its use. But basically, as uh, applying the principle that I mentioned there in Daniel, 
if it's bad for you, it's unclean before God. It's not something that he would say, this is good, pristine, wonderful, and useful. In, in principle, anything that is bad for our body or bad for our mind is unclean and unholy for us. Then he says, verse 13, Behold, my servant shall deal prudently, he shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at you, or at him, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, for our physical healing. No man had ever been beaten, beaten as badly as he was beaten. And his visage so changed and marred by what they did to him. And then he goes on down and says, verse 5, well, verse 4. Well, let's go verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Now, do we sometimes hide our faces from what he did for us and go on covetously eating those things that we want to eat? Enjoying those things that taste good to us, that we know are good for us. I mean, it's not like I have to totally educate everyone on what's good for us. Is there anybody that's educated all in America who realizes all these refined, processed things are hard on our bodies? They're filled with chemicals. They're filled with preservatives. They're filled with coloring. They're filled with any chemical you name. Uh, the vitamins and minerals often that are in bottles and in pills come from oyster shells, mare's urine, monkey pus, they use any and everything they decide to use in their vaccines and in their pills. They don't tell us what's in them. It can say 100% pure beef. And the USDA allows, allows, I think it's 5% of pork or any other meat in it. See, they allow for insect parts and rat tails and various things in the hamburger because you can't get all of that out and there will be a certain amount of insect and rodent parts in food. So you can say it's pure beef. And you don't have to tell them the percentage of rat pieces and pork pieces that are in it. I think it's 5%. It might be 10. I'm not sure. It's been a while since I read that. But there's a lot of stuff in everything we eat and drink. And I submit to you that it's very, very difficult to go into a supermarket today and find anything to eat but it's worth eating. If it's bottled or canned, it has probably been processed and refined, and that refining and processing destroys the food value. And not only that, it makes some things poisonous. And not only that, they do put poison in it. And it also has chemical insecticides, antibiotics, growth hormones. Many things are now being genetically altered. Mankind is fooling with the things God made and created. Even if you go to the vegetable and fruit bin, you're going to find chemical fertilizers and pesticides for the most part. Now, it's almost impossible to eat things that are truly good for us today that have no harmful things put in them in some form or fashion. 
But I will say that I think God expects us to do the absolute best we can with what is put before us. That means we need to make some major changes. Otherwise, we are despising the beating and the suffering that our Lord and Master went through. I don't want to give a picky sermon about foods. I want us to understand that he was broken and beaten for our healing. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Can it be any clearer than that? This isn't my idea. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. That bruising, that beating, that affliction that he went through was for our healing. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and most of it is the way of the world. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. But we would open our mouth, won't we? Very difficult to hear the words that I'm saying today. This is a very hard message if we actually do something about it, as opposed to sitting and agreeing that, well, that's right. It's one thing to say that's right. It's another thing to do it. Blessed are those who are doers of the word, not hearers only. Didn't open his mouth, but we open our mouths very easily to justify it. Well, I can't do that. I can't make those changes. That's too hard, or it's impossible today. So give up me donuts or whatever. No, he didn't open his mouth. He took it. He didn't deserve it, but he took it. We deserve it if we have trouble taking it. Not so. It says that there's. It doesn't please God if we take something patiently that we didn't do, or did do, it's when we take it patiently when we didn't do it that it's acceptable to him. He didn't do it, and he accepted our sins. I mean, in some ways, wasn't it harder to take all the beating and the flaying and the stripping and to his flesh than it was to just die? I mean... Haven't we often said, man, just, if you're going to do it to me, do it quick. Shoot me from behind. <laughs> I don't want to suffer. I mean, we look at some of the things that were done to Isaiah and to Paul and to uh, different ones who were martyred and, and the persecutions and, or not the persecutions, but the, uh, the torment and the torture that they went through. We think, man, I could die, but I don't know why I could go through all that torture or not. That's our emotion. Well, he went through all that torture for our physical healing. But by his stripes, we might be healed. His death was for eternal life. So that we might live. And when you put it in this light, this is a serious, serious issue. And I do not want to beat Christ afresh, even as I do not want to crucify him afresh by spiritual sin by denying those things that I know. Now, I want to read a couple of things to you here. I won't take a lot of time with this. Here is a, an article about, called Give Soda Machines the Can. 
soda pop machines in schools is a big business today. Uh, they uh, fund their athletic programs. They fund a lot of different things with the sales of soda pop that kids buy at school. In Los Angeles, they're trying to stop that. In other places, they're trying to stop it. Even the world itself is beginning to realize this stuff is poison. So where are we? Shouldn't we be the leaders instead of the followers? How long have I known soda pop was not good for me? About 50 years. Now, on that particular one, I probably, over the last 10 years, have had one or two a year. So I'm good on that one. Pretty good. But a lot of people in the church swig it. I mean, uh, whether it's Mountain Dew and the caffeine to keep you moving and so on, or whether it's pop just for fun or whatever. But they're becoming very concerned now about obesity. And a lot of obesity is from sugar waters and, and sugar products. For all these overweight kids, it's saying, the health risks are alarming. Uh, the cases of type 2 diabetes normally seen only in middle age have nearly doubled in the last decade. Uh, the magazine also cited higher incidences of asthma, gallbladder disease, and sleep apnea. Parent groups have urged schools to ban the sale of soda, but the results have been patchy. Some say we gain millions of dollars of revenue from that, we're not going to put it out. We don't care, in other words, how sick the kids are. We want the money. Now, is this greed and covetousness or not? Here's one. Uh, this is from USA Today, as was that one. I, I mean, you can pick up magazines, articles, books, anything today, and you'll see some of this stuff in it. Where are we the leaders? <laughs> you know. I am their leader. I must find them. Where are they? Many, this is a, a subtitle here, many who have weight problems haven't learned that they can't have it all. That's the Tenth Commandment, covetousness. We want what we want. Frank just brought me one here. It says, cannibals to cows, the path of a deadly disease. They say they have mad cow under control, but millions of unaware people may be infected. Why it could still turn into an epidemic. This is from Newsweek. This isn't the National Enquirer or Globe. This is Newsweek. What few of us realize is that these tolls could mark the beginning of something vastly bigger. For 11 years following the Pitchham Farm episode, British exporters shipped the remains of BSE-infected cows all over the world is cattle feed. The potentially tainted gruel reached more than 80 countries, and millions of people, not only in Europe, but throughout Russia and Southeast Asia, have eaten cattle that were raised on it. I remember, in that light, when I was a child of 8, 9, 10 years of age, they had what we called cow cakes that my granddad and my dad fed to the cattle. And I fed to the cattle. And we would eat that stuff as kids, because it was it was compressed alfalfa and various other things uh, that they put in the feed. I remember distinctly that the ingredients on that were oatmeal, that which has caused 
out his ease in England and other places. Bone meal. I was eating it as a child in the county. I mean, they fed me, but I, you know, kids, we went to the barn and we chewed on stuff. But it was, it was, it was in the cow feed in America in the 40s and 50s. I don't know how far back it went. Maybe that explains some of my mental problems, but we won't go into that. Statistics reveal how difficult it is to, to get over uh, obesity. Worldwide, more than one billion people are overweight, and of those, 300 million are obese, according to the International Obesity Task Force. A startling 61% or more than 100 million people in America alone are either overweight or obese. Obesity is roughly 30 pounds or more over a healthy weight. Now, this makes those who are overweight like me uncomfortable, but it is not limited to fat people. There are lots of skinny Americans who are getting cancer. There are lots of skinny Americans with heart disease and diabetes. Obesity increases the chances of all those things. But there are people who are skinny and have high metabolisms who eat junk also and just don't get fat. But that doesn't mean they're not taking in carcinogenics and that they're not going to be sick. So looks are not everything. Uh, there was more in here I wanted to get to. Let's see, where was I headed? To help curb the obesity epidemic, researchers are racing to uncover insights into weight loss and management. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, because, really, it's pretty simple. Eat right and exercise, something we've all known. You will lose weight and you will be healthier. That's the bottom line. But people don't want to do that. Does the vast majority fall somewhere between obesity and, and uh, overweight? Uh, and whether they can maintain a healthy body weight depends largely on how much effort they are willing to put into it, says Hill. Now, I gave you some scriptures and some principles from the Bible to help motivate us to understand that this is a serious problem with God. And he may have withdrawn much healing from us because of it. Speaking of the effort put into physical health, it says it wasn't always this way. In the past, when most people had to work harder physically for their food, their weight was controlled naturally by their body and the environment and required little conscious effort. Now, many people don't get much physical activity in their daily lives, and at the same time, the abundant food supply I say food, in uh, quotes, is high in fat and calories, easily available, relatively inexpensive, good tasting, and served in large portions. But the body does not have a biological drive on its own to do more physical activity because it's taking in more calories. In fact, the more calories you take in, the more you like to sit on the couch. Fat people don't like to exercise. I know. So people become overweight and obese unless they really focus on it. Barbara Rolls, professor of nutrition at Pennsylvania State University, believes that many people have difficulty maintaining a healthy weight because they haven't learned that they can't have it all. Again, covetousness. That's the American way, isn't it? 
We deserve it. We just indulge, indulge, indulge. We don't want to feel deprived because we are so stressed out and overworked, and food is one of the few pleasures that people get routinely. So they are stressed and they eat more. They're frustrated and they eat more. That's the American way. Well, it's killing us. The bottom line for weight loss is you have to eat fewer calories than your body needs. Simple principle and very true. People say, I cannot lose weight. No, it's not that they cannot lose weight. They cannot discipline themselves to eat less food than they are. Now, if you get heavily overweight, your body does start doing things, but your your thyroid was not out of whack before, in most cases. Your thyroid got out of whack because you're eating the wrong things and gaining weight, and first thing you know, it didn't know how to act anymore. And now you can scream thyroid all you want, and maybe with some justification, but it was you that caused it to be out of shape in the first place and not functioning properly. Brownell says that if people watch portion sizes, eat fruits and vegetables, and less junk, they'd be 90% of the way toward a healthy diet. Well, isn't that a revelation? No, we all knew that, didn't we? We just don't live it. If anything, she says, has become clear over the past 10 years, it is the importance of exercise and weight loss and maintaining it. And you have to change lifestyle. I mean, people have gone on crash diet after crash diet of all kinds. And yes, they've lost weight. But then once the diet is over and they've, well, either reached their goals or given up or whatever, but the diet quits for whatever reason, what do they do? They go back to eating exactly like they were that made them that way in the first place. So they crash it off and add it back on. Crash it off and add it back on. Am I saying anything new here? No. It's the vicious cycle people get into. And they don't have permanent weight loss. And that's gets hard on the body, that up and down. That gets very hard on the body. In fact, in some cases, that's harder on the body than actually being somewhat overweight. Because the body has trouble adjusting to all the, the ups and downs. I'm not saying that you can use that as an excuse not to lose it, but we have to change our lifestyle. That's what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, is change their lifestyle. They said, don't give us this stuff anymore. We want to eat that which is good for us. See, it doesn't matter exactly what it was they were giving them, because we know today that a lot of the stuff we are eating is not good. Now, you, they'll tell you, Quit drinking the pop, drink milk. Well, we got a problem there, too. When they homogenize milk, they blow it against the wall with great force. They break the molecules down so that the body cannot get rid of them as it processes the milk. And they go into your arteries and clog your arteries. You wind up with a quadruple bypass from drinking homogenized milk. Milk is a good food in its natural state as God made it. It is a food that we should enjoy. But if it's homogenized, it is injurious and poison to the body. If I go out to a sugarcane field and I cut myself a piece of sugarcane and suck on it, 
it is in the natural form that God made it, and it probably is not that harmful to me if I don't have too much of it, too much sweet. But once it is refined and processed and any value that was in it is gone, it becomes a toxic poison. It stops up and clogs the system and is a poison. And the aspartame and the other artificial sweeteners are even more poisonous. It may be responsible for Alzheimer's and a lot of things that are modern diseases that are going on today. See, I can sit here without notes and tell you this stuff. I know it. What am I going to do about it? I've started doing some things about it. Some of you are seeing me turn down some of the things you make. I don't mean it's an insult to you, but I'm trying to get this resolved. I'm trying to do it right. And I find that in many cases it's very difficult on this trip. I've had to have a cooler in the car and basically eat out of it. I haven't eaten out but three or four times. And then I had to be very careful because there wasn't anything on the menu that was really worth eating. You can go to a, I went to Shoney's and had a salad basically one night. And so that's all I had, big salad. I don't know what was in the dressing. You know, you get some of these prepared dressings and, and you look down there at the ingredients on them and they're full of chemicals too. And, you know, stuff doesn't spoil in American stores anymore. It just outlives its shelf life. It's been refined and processed to the place that it won't spoil. It just gets stale and old. So they take it off the shelf. Well, not everything, but in, in many cases. And I can't tell you everything that you shove down the hatch and what you shouldn't. We should be able to apply the principle. And we should be able to look at that label and see if it's full of uh, preservatives and, and uh, chemical dyes and colors and uh, all the different things they use in it. I think we need to get it out of our diet. Now, does this seem unfair and unbalanced? Maybe so, to some. But you can go back and look at what Daniel did, and they would have said the same thing of them. But they they made a stand. Don't give us this stuff. Now, here's an article in Reader's Digest. It's anywhere. I mean, you can find this stuff anywhere. Uh, but there's a point I want to get out of this article. And it, and it starts out about imagining a disease that kills as many as 300,000 Americans a year, and you don't really recognize it as a disease, and it's talking about obesity, and you have a one in four chance of, of getting it. Uh, the disease is real. It's not just a national case of bad eating habits. It's become a plague. It's become a disease, a public health epidemic, it calls it. Uh, it is a medical problem with medical consequences. It, in other words, it can kill you. If obesity were an infectious disease, we'd mobilize the nation. I mean, we get 22 cases of West Nile virus deaths in the nation, and boy, it's a big deal. It's on CNN and all the newscasts and everything because these mosquitoes are killing us. But we're dying by the hundreds of thousands and millions because of what we eat. It's not considered a big deal. I mean, we're, we're, we've accepted it. Dying of heart disease, cancer, and diabetes has become acceptable in America today, just as dying in an automobile accident is an acceptable form of death. And I tell you before God, these are not acceptable forms of death. God gives us health principles throughout the Bible, and he tells us Christ was beaten 
And he gives us Daniel, which is an end-time prophecy, to show us that we had better not eat like the Babylonians or drink like the Babylonians. Not just eating, but drinking. You could, you, anything you want to bring up. All right, let's talk about alcohol. The beers, the wines, the hard liquors are full of chemicals. It's hard to buy wine that doesn't have sulfites in it. The preservative, what do you do? Pickle juice. It's not good for you. Beers have chemicals in them to hasten the natural fermentation process. It's hard to find a beer that is brewed naturally because of greed and covetousness again. They want to get that stuff in those barrels and vats and get it out of there as quick as they can and have it have as long a shelf life as they can. And it is not a natural drink, but I think God would have us drink. So what are we going to do? Can't even drown our sorrows <laughs> over all this. Maybe we need to learn to make wine or make beer or make it naturally. It can be done. Maybe we could get away from the sulfites. Some people drink certain types of beer and they get headaches. Why? Because of the chemicals in it. You know, this is pretty far-reaching, what I'm trying to tell you today. There's very little in that store you can go buy and eat that's good. I'm thinking there in Canada, maybe we ought to find us 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 acres or so that has water on it and have a community garden and try to raise it in good soil without pesticides, without chemicals, and raise the best food we can raise, meat included, and, uh, and do what we can to resolve the problem. Now, if we do or not, or are able or not to accomplish that, we'll wait and see. But if we set a goal, I think we can do it. But in the meantime, we need to be moving in the direction that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego moved. We need to make some life decisions and make some stands. I mean, how can I, in good conscience, anoint somebody and ask God to heal them when I know what they're eating? Sugar ice cream, donuts, pop, Gatorade, sulfites, and wine and alcohol. How can we pray the prayer of faith, brethren, when we know that we are giving Christ stripes afresh? when we know better. Here in this article it says, most often we blame the individual for being overweight. And there is certainly personal responsibility. We have a responsibility for what we shove down our face. But they're making a point here that I think is important. After all, we've heard the eat less, exercise more message for decades. As I said, this isn't a new message. The average person who is obese knows what they're supposed to eat. They can do it conceptually, but they can't do it for real. It's one thing to understand what's good for us and not good for us. It's another thing to make the change. The problem, then, is not the message. It's the environment, says Kelly Brownell, director of the Yale Center for Eating and Weight Disorders. We've spent years trying to figure out why the individual is overweight and almost no time thinking why the nation is overweight. See the difference? Why is our nation overweight? Because of candy and white sugar and white flour and uh, too many carbohydrates 
wretched stuff in the meat, and all the things we're eating. That's why we're overweight. But is the nation going to do anything about it? Nah, not really. Then they cite some cases where in Washington, D.C., uh, let's see, in one place in Maine, that the, the uh, I guess it was the mayor of Philadelphia, challenged the, the, the city to lose 76,000 pounds or 76 tons or whatever it was. I don't, I don't want to go through this whole article. Uh, yeah, 76 tons in 76 days because they got the 70, Philadelphia 76-year basketball team. And 8,000 people lost a collective six tons. That's not near what the goal was, but some people got involved. The mayor himself exercised in public and served fruits and veggies at meetings. Hundreds of people brag about their town's loss, as fat czar Glenn Foster. Uh, in Maine, a group of doctors changed the tide of obesity. Death rates from heart disease and stroke in the 60s were higher in Farmington, Maine, and surrounding Franklin County than in much of the state. Yet today, Franklin County enjoys one of the lowest death rates in Maine and the second lowest rate of overweight and obese residents. What transformed the town? The efforts of medical professionals who decided they wanted to prevent disease instead of treat it. Volunteer, uh, volunteers tested shoppers' blood pressure and cholesterol at grocery stores and offered nutrition advice. Soon, they had schools inviting adults to exercise by pacing their halls, and the university opened its gym. A recent walking program, Stride into Summer, involves 500 residents. Not every town has Farmington's dedicated positions or Philadelphia's political will, but both places show what can be achieved. There's something important that happened here, says Dr. N. Virgin's record, one of the early participants. We've learned something we can teach the nation. Now is the nation ready to listen. And I say, is the church ready to listen? Now, the point I want to make out of this article is it would be easier to do if we were all doing it. They are saying that it's very difficult for one person, even though we are personally responsible before God and man, it's more difficult if the whole nation is going this way and you're trying to go that way. So if the whole nation would turn it around and they would take out the pop machines and, and the junk out of our schools and out of our supermarkets, and the supermarkets would then become a vegetable and fruit stand. <laughs> That's about all that would be left. If they would do that, it would make it easier for the individual to do what he should. And if we as a church accept the challenge of eating right and exercising and taking care of our bodies, and iron sharpens iron, it would be easier for individuals to do so. It's easier to do it individually in a group than it is individually against the group. Now I want to caution before you accept this challenge that there is an awful lot of room here for self-righteousness. There is an awful lot of room for uh, judgment and condemnation of others who might not be as good at it or as adept at it as you, who may have more serious problems to start with than someone else, there may be people who have been eating better all along than others, and who's, I mean, we, we all we have varying degrees of health. Some of us are about to fall over dead. Some of us are pretty healthy. So 
for some, it will be easier than others. Some are way overweight. Some are skinny. And it's real easy to say, well, I dropped this and I'm still skinny. Why are you still fat? See, we need to be careful in our attitudes, as in anything. Whether spiritual overcoming or this physical thing that I'm talking about today, we need to be very, very careful not to become judgmental. We need to be helpful one to another. When they come to our house, we need to serve them only things that are good for them. We go to the potluck, there need be only things there that are good for us to eat so that we don't have to say, well, I no, wonder about that. We need to learn to cook with whole wheat, whole corn, whole rye. We need to learn to get rid of sugar. We need to get rid of ketchup, which is full of sugar. I mean, on and on and on it goes. I can't tell you every food you need to get rid of. But you can read, and you can see. And if it is refined, and it is processed, it is the food of Babylon. If it has chemicals, preservatives, and artificial colors and flavors, it is the food of Babylon. Now it is going to be a real challenge to get all of that out of our diets. So I think that in order to do what Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did, it's going to take some effort. Now, a lot of you have been saying, boy, I can't wait till you get the path to uh, the book of Daniel. Now, how do you feel? <laughs> this is a hard thing I'm talking about. But it's how the book of Daniel starts out. It says, be eunuchs from this world. Don't have concourse and intercourse with it. And then it says, get rid of the foods and the drinks of Babylon and start eating, as Herbert Armstrong told us 50 years ago that I remember eat things that will spoil and eat them before they spoil. See how simple that is? If it's full of preservatives, it won't spoil. It'll just lose its shelf life and become bland and tasteless or whatever. As a general rule. But if we would eat things that 